began this particular series of messages actually a couple of Sunday nights ago. And if you were here for that, you know that I mentioned that you would be seeing this again and probably would show up on Sunday morning, and here it is. Um, And I made a declaration at the beginning of that message, and it was this. I believe that we are in a time of revolution, a time of revolution. And I'm not talking about a political revolution. And I'm not talking about an economic revolution. I'm not talking about a social revolution, although probably all of those are needed in Jesus' name. But I'm talking about the revolution we are in in the kingdom of God spiritually, in the church. Pastor, what's your view of the church right now? Not just refuge, but the church. Well, I know we have lots of challenges, and I know we are not exactly everywhere we need to be yet, particularly not in America. But where I am not at is a place of hopelessness and darkness and discouragement. And one of the reasons I'm not is because look around this room today. We have a beautiful church family who love God, who love one another, in no way perfect. We're all still on our own journey, and yet here we are worshiping God together. You came this morning at great uh, peril to your convenience because it would have been convenient to stay home or stay in bed or do other things. It would have been more convenient for you to not tithe or sow today. It would have been more convenient for you to not prepare in whatever ways you prepare to be at church and read your Bible and talk to the Lord on a daily basis, and yet you're doing those things. You're walking with God. Some of you have made great decisions this week that were led by the Spirit of God or from the Word of God that required you to make a stand. Some of you have have moved away from, from friends and family and moved in a direction towards God that has cost you something, and yet here you are. You're walking with God. You love God. You're not trying to compromise and fail. You're not trying to make friends with the world system and give in to the enemy. That's not what you're doing if you're here this morning. You are probably pursuing God with all of your heart. So I'm not discouraged about the American church. Do we have problems? Do we have challenges? Do we have things that need attention? Without a doubt. But I'm just telling you, Jesus said, I will build my church. He's not ignorant of what's going on. He's still working. If he had taken us out of here by now, then it'd be over. But we aren't gone, so it's not over. So listen, you may be happy with your church, but I'm also asking you to be encouraged about the rest of the church. Is there places of darkness? Are there places of compromise and peril? Of course there are, but God is working, and I'm believing that the bride of Christ, before she's taken out of here, is going to have to become glorious, because that is the bride that gets presented to Jesus. He's not bringing us to a place of we barely make it, we hopefully scrape past this finish line. No! We're going swords raised, teeth bared, right into the glorious kingdom of God in victory. I'm not going to barely make it. I'm going to be trampling demons when I go out of here. The last day I live, I want the enemy to have had a headache because of all I've done on planet earth for the kingdom of God. We're not going to barely make it. We're going out in glory. And until we're glorious, I'm not giving up. So you're not going out there and arguing with all the people that's got their theology wrong? No! You're not going out there and creating YouTube channels to hate on everybody that's compromising? No, I don't have time for that. My schedule and my life are full of ministering to people who want God and reaching people who need Him. 
And every week we are finding people who are open to the gospel and who you can pray for and they see miracles and lives changing. So that's where we're focused. That's where we're focused right now. Because if you're looking for open doors in people's lives, they're there. I'm telling you, if you'll, you'll change your attitude about some people around you, your neighborhood, your work, everybody may not be open, but somebody is. Somebody will listen. Somebody will let you love them. Let me just tell you, so you start serving and loving people, you'll find somebody that will allow you to do that. You start finding a way to pray for them and show them the love of God. Those people are out there now. I'm not discouraged. I'm not going to be distracted by what's going wrong because we're on a different path here, and so I can't, I can't get located in all of that. We're, we're located in victory, and we're not moving off of that because I believe that there is a revolution underway. Now, why can I even believe that things would be changing in the church when there's a lot of issues? There's a lot of problems? Well, because, because the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, both say the same thing, and it's quoting God. He says, in the last days, how many of you agree this is last days that we're in? He says, in the last days, I pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, if God's spirit is here working, then I can believe for a revolution because he's the, revolu he's the revolution power. He's the God that can change anything. He's the God that can do anything. And if he's pouring out of his spirit, why would I not believe that things are changing? So the revolution that's happening right now, at least in our part of the universe. And it must begin, by the way, at our part of the universe. Because if we try to change the world before we're changed, that's not going to work very well. I believe Jesus was clear about that. You're going to need to deal with the telephone pole in your own eye before you start calling out the sawdust in the other guy's eye. I believe the Bible says judgment begins where? At the house of God. So we're going to let God change us. We're going to let God bring revolution to me and to my church and to my family. And that revolution right now that we're talking about is a royal revolution. Somebody say royal revolution. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones. Read the Bible slow, you find cool stuff. Coming to him as a living stone. Talk about Jesus. Rejected by men, which we know that's true. But chosen by God and precious. We know that's true of the Lord. Okay, he's the living stone. You also as living stones. So, Jesus is the rock, but I also, in him, am a living stone. Nudge your neighbor and tell him, you'll chip off the old block. So much for that my life just has to be beat up by the world and influenced by everything negative. And I just sway with the breeze. And the way life takes me is just what I have to do. No. It says I get to be a living stone. Jesus was solid. He was, he was immovable. And I'm in him. So I get to be a living stone too. I get to be you can't break me. Devil, circumstances, past, 
sin, people. You don't get to break me. I'm a living stone. Not because of me, but because of the one that lives in me. Because the one who lives in me is greater than the one that's in the world. If we really believe these things, it'll change our life. See, because if you go out tomorrow and you believe that you are a living stone just like Jesus, then you're not going to be intimidated by things that come your way. You're not going to back down. You're not going to feel like you got to compromise. When the, in, when the flesh rises up and makes you feel like, well, I'm just going to be pulled into compromise. No, I'm not. I'm a living stone. I'm going to make it. I'm going to stand in faith. The regenerate power of Jesus is going to rise up inside of me, and I'm going to stand firm on the truth. That's who I'm going to be. But too many of us want, walk out the door in the morning, and we're not sure if we're going, well, I hope I don't get tempted too hard today. No. I probably will get tempted. And that's going to be the, oper- the, the, power, the, the opportunity for the power of God to be made perfect in my weakness. That's what's going to happen, devil. See, a lot of it is our mindset. We already defeated before the temptation comes because we don't know we're already victorious. Living stones. We're just reading scripture. Let's keep going. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, Elect, precious, Jesus. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained, those of you that felt like outcasts your whole life, you didn't get picked for nothing, you play four square on the playground and you'd be at the end of the line and still nobody pick you. They, you'd be the one that the, the team captain give to the other team. Say, I'll do better without him. Some of us know that. We lived it. I lived it. Feel like you're not included in groups. Feel like that you're excluded from people's conversations. Feel like that you're never quite enough. You didn't make it into that and you didn't accomplish this and feel like you're separate. But now you are the people of God. See, let this word sink into you what God's really saying to you. He knows the needs of your heart. He knows the wounds of your life. And when you read the Bible, you find out he's dealing with each of those. When he says to you, you are chosen and royal and holy, and you are special that you may proclaim the praises of him, who were not once not a people, but now are the people of God. You had not obtained mercy. There was a time before Jesus when you were as guilty as you were, could be. But now because of Jesus in your life, you've obtained mercy. Church, we need a revolution in our understanding, in our perspective, and in our actions because for too long, God's people has been living as if somehow we are controlled by and connected to this world. As if because our physical presence on the planet necessitates 
that we are tied to the way this planet goes. I'm telling you something. You ain't got to go down with this ship. You don't have to be tied to what's going on in the world. It can go on around you and it won't go on in you. It won't have to pull you in and control your thinking and discourage your life and steal your faith and take your identity in Christ. It doesn't have to happen. We can allow ourselves to be victims, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary because the word of God equips us differently because Peter said, but you are. Here's what you are. Let the word of God define for you who you are. Do not let your past experiences or your past performance dictate to you. See, if, if st- all-star athletes let past performances dictate to them, there would be no champions. Because my friend, it doesn't matter how many championships, how many records were set by Michael Jordan. The fact of the matter was, there were games that he lost. Name whatever greatest champion in any sport, any endeavor of life, and you will find out that usually there were moments when it didn't exactly work out in their favor. And what they don't do if they're a champion is allow the moment of loss to become their identity. Well, I guess I'm a loser. No, that heart of a champion says, no, I'm going to go back out and play the game the next day because the outcome can be different today. I can change my game. I can, I can learn from, from where I failed. I can grow. I can train differently. I can, I can talk to a coach. I can try again because the heart of a champion knows that a loss doesn't dictate an identity. Having a weak moment in God doesn't mean you're a failure, a loser, an outcast. No, you'll be a loser if you let that failure become your excuse to quit. But if you let something else inside of you, the word of God, the truth of God rise up and say, wait a minute, I may have had a bad day yesterday, but the Bible doesn't say it. I'm defined by my day. The Bible defines me by who God says I am and who he created me to be. And I'm chosen and I'm royal and I'm part of a holy priesthood and I'm part of a people of God now. That's my identity. Let the word create for you your identity because you need to understand who you are because who you are dictates how you live. Who you are dictates how you live. If you graduate college with a degree in education, and you believe that you have that degree, then you will probably go sit for your exams to get certified. You'll walk in there like you belong there. Your name will be on the list, and you'll think it should be. You'll sit down with pencil in hand. I don't know if you do that anymore. Me, it was the little blue books and the pencil. Anybody remember that? I don't know if that even exists anymore. And you'll think, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And then when you get certified, you'll go apply for a teaching position because you believe that you're a teacher. And then when you get the job on the first, you know, when they give you the key and let you in the building and say, hey, we're getting ready for classes, then you'll go and set up your room. And you'll get your copies made and you'll get your plans prepared. Why? Because you believe you're a teacher. 
it proves that what you believe you are is exactly how you'll behave. Which is why the Bible spends a great deal of time showing you in Christ who you are so you'll behave like who you are instead of not like who you are. Have you ever seen somebody that lived below their means? You just thought, wow, they're living way below. They could be doing a lot more and they just aren't. Or they, didn't have, they wouldn't have to settle for that kind of relationship. Does she not know she doesn't have to be treated that way? Do they not know that they could probably, if they would just try for that promotion, they could get it? Do they not? Have you seen somebody like that? The reality is they don't know who they are. You can see it and they don't have a clue. Same is true in the spirit. Sometimes others can see what you should be and you can't see it yourself. And when they come and try to encourage you, you just kind of, oh, thank you, but I don't. No, you need to listen. You need to listen to the truth. Because if it's what the Word says, then that's more true than what you feel. If it's what the Word says, it's more true than what your evidence seems to suggest. What your past seems to suggest. What your flesh seems to suggest. No, the, the, the Word is more true than all of it. And you are, according to Peter, a royal priesthood. See, we've been redeemed by God filled with his spirit, and then sent into this earth, not to just survive and barely make it. No, he redeemed us, and then he said, he didn't take us out of the earth immediately. It'd be interesting, if God had no purpose for you here, you'd have been saved and then taken to heaven immediately. But he says, here's what I want you to do. Now that you've been changed, now you're going to go be the salt and the light in the world that needs salt and light. And while we're upset that the world needs salt and light, because that's what many Christians are doing, just angry that the world needs salt and light because it's so ugly and so sinful and so dark. Well, sure it is. That's why we're here. To be the salt and the light. I'm not fixing it by griping about it. I go be salt and I go be light. We're here to occupy until he comes. We're here to preach the gospel to every nation and see signs and wonders follow. We're here to speak the truth in love. We're here to take care of the widow and the orphan and visit the prisoner and to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. We've been given all of those assignments. Well, who gave those assignments? Our Father, our God, the great King. We are here now. Your life is about royal business. Your daily assignment, no matter where you find yourself in life, is royal business. Eternity is in view. With every life that you touch, we are ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5. Ambassadors of the king. In other words, we've been to heaven in our spirits. We've experienced what God can do, and now we're taking that everywhere we go. The ambassador from the United States to other nations leaves where he's at and goes and takes the representation of America and its government to whatever place he finds himself. That is what you are doing when the Bible calls you an ambassador. You have a connection to heaven. You're filled with God's spirit. He stamped upon you his image and likeness and now he's called you to take that to wherever you're sent in this world. Ambassadors for God. That's who you are. But often, hello, but often, Let them talk to me. That'd be a shock, wouldn't it? <laughs> Some of you might remember this. You might have been here 16 years ago when this happened. 
Brother Gorman was here preaching a revival one day. For some reason, he always kept his phone with him when he came to the pulpit. Now, if you're not going to turn it off or something, that's dangerous. It's on. His phone is on him. Somebody calls him. He's in the middle of preaching. Anybody remember this? He picks the phone up, opens it. It was a flip phone. He answers it. He says, I'm preaching. Slam. (laughs) I was thinking about being on the other end of that call. would have been something. I'm not sure I'd ever called back. Man, I hope it was a telemarketer. That's great. But for all of this discussion in the word of God of who we are as redeemed people and the investment God's made in us and our call and our purpose to be salt and light and ambassadors of Christ, for all of that, so many times we act like victims instead of victors. But I believe, and this is the revolution, that there's a generation of God's people who understand how powerful God's work has been in them. How many of you know that God has done a powerful work in you. Only God could have done what's happened in you. If you believe that, and you believe you're a child of the king, you'll become willing to walk in that kingdom authority while on this earth so that you can get kingdom business accomplished. But the problem is most of us weren't raised around royalty and we don't have really any relationship to it whatsoever of understanding so when he says you're a royal priesthood, I, I, that's wonderful, but I don't have a grid for that. So we're going to need some examples. We're going to need some models, and the Word has plenty for us to see this morning. I want, to, I want you to see an area of royalty that is essential to the church and to the kingdom of God. And it's an area where King David, there's your royalty, where he excelled. First Chronicles chapter 29. Now, David, at this moment, is nearing the end of his journey, and he's preparing for the time when he's off the scene and Solomon is going to reign after him. And you have to understand about David, David wanted to build a house, a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. He wanted to build a place for God's presence, a permanent dwelling for that. Because the ark right now is in a tent and there's, there's 24-7 worship and sacrificing and music going on around that, but David's not satisfied. He wants there to be a permanent temple for the presence of God and that's what's in his heart. But God let him know you're not gonna get to do that because you've been a man who shed a lot of blood. Your hands have been about war and not about building my temple. But you're gonna have a son who's gonna succeed you and he's going to get to build the temple that you would love to build. And so David takes that as an encouragement that what he'll do then is spend the rest of his life preparing so that Solomon can do that work. So now David is prepared. He's prepared all of the, uh, the uh, plans for this temple. He's procured the resources for the temple. He's making it so that the next generation can carry on. It really, every time I read this, it really challenges me Am I preparing my daughter so that when I'm off the scene, she can just keep going as if I never left? 
so that whatever God puts in her hand to do, I have already gotten her the equipping she needs so that she could just carry on with it. Because that is, in royal perspective, that is what kings should do. And if we are a royal priesthood, then we should be good looking at the next generation and saying, what can I do to prepare things for them so they can fulfill the will of God for their life? Not they have to stumble upon it and start from scratch, but I've built a platform that they can just continue on, just some food for thought. And so that's the background when we get to 1 Chronicles 29, verse 2. Now for the house of my God, this is David talking, I have prepared with all my might Gold for the things to be made of gold, silver for the things of silver, bronze for the things of bronze, iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I've set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. And so David is participating. He'll never see it with natural eye. But he's preparing for the temple that's in his heart. God, we're going to build your house. And so I want to be part, even though I'll never physically build it, I want to be part of preparing for it now. Whether the tabernacle and temple or the New Testament church this is one thing we have to understand. The building of God's house is always a supernatural work. Prove it. Jesus said, I will build my church. Understand that when it was the tabernacle, when it was the temple, and the house for God's presence was being built, it ended up becoming and being required to be a supernatural work. You can say, well, people, people labored. Yes, but hold on. Because you understand that both the pattern for the tabernacle and the temple didn't come from architects. It had to be given specifically, verbally, from God. Moses didn't know how to make a tabernacle that would please the Lord. Any more than you and I know what to do with our lives to please God, unless God shows us. And so he took him to the mountain, and he shows him this is the pattern. And he was very clear about what must be built. So already, before the plans even begin for the tabernacle, it's supernatural already. God's, all, God's hand is already having to do the work in just the planning. And then when it came time to resource the building of the tabernacle, do you remember that the people brought the offerings, they brought the goods, the, the resources that would provide the materials to build that tabernacle? Why were the people so wealthy? Why did they have so much valuable stuff? Well, do you remember how they got it? They raided Egypt when they came out. The Egyptians were giving them their valuables. How was that done? That also had to be supernatural. Man couldn't demand that. Everything that happened in the Exodus was supernatural. God had to orchestrate all of that. And so God orchestrates 
them having in their hand the resources, yes, they're going to give them, but God had to give them to them in the first place. And God has also given Moses the plan. And so construction's not even started, and the tabernacle's also already supernatural. Fast forward to the church. And Jesus says, I will build my church. We can put together the best collection of ideas of how to make a church, how to make it run, how to make it grow, how to make it meet its budget, how to advertise it to the world. We can come up with a concoction of ideas and best practices and advice. We can do all of that. And you can set up a structure and a system and probably even gather people. But when you find out that the church is the body of Christ on the earth, in other words, we are to be the expression of God, well, suddenly I realize my best practices and my books and my my methods and my theories, they don't demonstrate God. Only the Spirit of God can demonstrate God through my life. Only he can do the work. Only he can reveal the person and the nature of Jesus. Only he can save a soul and deliver a bound person. So if the church is to be built, it also must be supernatural. So from the beginning, anything that happens to build God's house is always has to be supernatural. If we think somehow we can do it, we can't. Now what the Americans have done is learn how to build things that look like church so that we think we have one. I mean, the building looks like a church. I mean, they have programs and they have things going on that look like a church. Praise God. The question is this, though. Is it the body of Christ? In other words, is it the place where the Spirit of God lives and animates it and works and moves and changes lives? Now we got a church, if that's the case. Because the body of Christ on this earth, you found out what he did was save sinners, preach the truth, heal broken people. So if that's what the body does... And we're the body, that's what we should be doing. But that's all supernatural. We can't execute those plans. Jesus said, I'll build my church. So the construction of the dwelling place of God is always supernatural. It always flows from God himself. But at the same time, it always does involve his people. The good news is the heavy lifting is not on our shoulders. That's on God's. God is the one that saved the lost. God is the one that convicts the sinner. God is the one who changes the lives and fulfills his own promises. God is the one who reveals himself in supernatural power and glory. We do not do that, but we do get to cooperate with him. So, at the same time, it's supernatural, but involves people. So it's God's work to build his house, but he brings us in as partners and co-laborers. He delegates responsibilities and authorities to us. He said, I'm going to do the work, but I'm going to get you to participate in bringing the message. I'm going to do the work in that life, but you get to be the one to love them and speak to them and serve them. I'm going to save, but you're going to preach the truth. You're going to lay hands on the sick, and then I'll do the healing. So it's, it's beautiful that our Father wants to bring us in on the family business. He says, this is my business and I've redeemed you and you're my children. Now you get to be part of it. 
And what a beautiful expression of the way God redeems us from wherever we started to now. We're such royalty that we get in on the family business when it's eternal business. Now, when it was time to build the temple, the king was the one who led the way. Now, we're talking about a royal identity. We're talking about we are a royal priesthood and understanding why that shapes who we are as believers and what it is to do. When it came time to build the temple, the king was the one who led the way. The king was the one who set the example for the people of how they were to partner with God. God didn't leave them out in the building of the temple, but he actually utilized them. And the question is, how do we allow God to use us in his kingdom work? Whether it's at work, at school, or whether it's in our families, in the marketplace where we find ourselves, how are we allowing God to be part of his work? Or do we pray he's doing something and we just stand aloof from it and hope it happens? Or do we say, God, would you like a mouthpiece? God, do you need a servant? God, do you want me to carry the message? The king, when it's time to build that temple, he led the way in being involved and he showed the people how to be involved. As we enter into a royal revolution, we take our place as a royal priesthood. As we move from being the tail to the head, as we shift from being victim to victor, from conquered to conquerors, the folks who see the kingdom of God come and his will be done on the earth as in heaven. If we're those folks, then we let some of these kings like King David show us the pattern for how we participate in building God's house. And the king set the pattern for us and for the people of his day in building the temple of God, the house of God, he set the pattern with generosity. It turns out that not only does a king plan for God's house and prepare for God's house, a king helped provide for God's house. David was all in for the temple. He said, God, I want, I want to see there to be an appropriate place for your presence to dwell on the earth to the point that I'll take the years of my life that I have left and I'll prepare I'll do the political work of making the connections with the nations who have the resources. I'm going to set aside my own resources. I'm going to give you this time. I'm going to give you my connections and my relationships. And I'm going to give my financial resources to the building. Of the, it was generosity. The king leads the way. This is what real, this is where you know the difference between a leader and a boss. Because the boss in the situation may tell you you need to be generous with your time and talent and treasure. The kingly person, the real leader, will show you how to do so by the way they do so. If you've ever had a boss that got in there and helped get the job done when it was crunch time, when everybody just needed to pull together and they were right along with you, that's the kind of boss you end up being willing to continuously work for. Because they don't just tell you what needs to be done. They'll be there with you helping you get it done. They're leading the way. That's what real royalty does. Real royalty doesn't dictate submission. Real royalty gives you a leadership that you want to submit to because they're going the right direction. And I want to be on their ship. So David says, of all the generosity to get this house built, I'm going to be the most generous. 
He was all in for the temple. His time, his team, his talent, all of it in preparation for the temple. And he also invested his treasure in the temple. And if we're going to rule and reign spiritually and cooperate with what God has going on in heaven, at some point we've got to decide that we're going to step up to this area of royalty and say we're going to be invested in every way. Lord, I'm investing my time. Because there's sometimes there's no substitute for time. There are folks that there's no substitute for time being spent with them. You'll not give them money. You'll not speak the right words. None of that will matter as much as the time will. You have to be discerning and know, God, this is a matter of I need to spend time with this individual. Those who feel guilty about not being able to give kids and grandkids certain material things you'd love to be able to do. Remember, the greatest gift is probably time that you're giving them. If you can spend time with them, that's not spending, that's investing. There's some things that your talents have to be involved. What God has placed inside of you, the abilities and the gifts, there's things that he set those up to fill a need. The reason a certain talent is inside of you, whether you think of it as a talent or not, but it's an ability that may be a little bit unique, it doesn't make you strange or weird. It means there is a hole that needs to be filled and your specific gift fills it. And by the way, throwing money or time at that won't do it. Your talent's needed. That means you do have to come forward and say, you know what, God, I'm able to do this and I need to be doing this. Because I'm good at this. I have experience at this. I know how to make this kind of thing work. And instead of just saying, well, you know, I'll support whoever does, at some point, your gift is needed. There's no useless gift that God gives. Everything is purposeful. Time, talent, and then there also is a point where treasure is needed. There are things that money has to buy, that resources have, you have extra of something you could do without, and that's the thing that's needed. That also is a huge spiritual ministry in its own right. And David was invested in all these ways to see the house of God build. And my question is, are you invested in all of those ways to see God's kingdom established in people's lives. The reality is it's easy to say that we want to build a place of refuge for people and we want to build and offer outreach ministries to feed and clothe people in need. It's easy to say we want to provide a place for young people to be taught the word of God and a place that gives people a chance to experience the Lord. It's easy to say we want to build churches in places that don't have one. Sounds good. It's another thing it's one thing to say it, it's quite another to actually build those things because all of those things require resources, time, someone's talent, and someone's treasure. Those things require expertise. They require equipment and facilities. They require human beings to meet people where they're at. And they all require finances. Let me give you an example as we come toward the end of this message. For instance, 
our church budget, this is all more, what I'm about to say, as I, as I let you know all these things, this is all miraculous to me. I'm amazed by it. Even though I live with the knowledge of it every day, I love to talk about it because it's the evidence of how supernatural the work of building God's church really is. But listen to this. Our church budget runs about around a million dollars every year. That runs three campuses, complete with kids, youth, young adults, senior, special needs, music ministry, small groups, Sunday school, then a food and clothing ministry that ministers to about 2,000 people a month, a recovery ministry. We support 50 missionaries. We take our own missions trips, which are construction teams in Mexico right now, building. We support the Gideons, provide for the Pregnancy Resource Center. We support Speed the Light, which is equipping missionaries with the things that they need as well as BGMC, which does the same. We partner with 911 Dispatch Center. Now we're doing Night to Shine this year, hosting a network conference for other ministries and churches. And then our other campuses support their local schools and their local city governments. All of that while we're maintaining our buildings, our properties, and our vehicles. What we are able to do as not a megachurch at all is miraculous to me. The, thing, the footprint that God uses us to make on the earth for the size of church we are is nothing short of supernatural. It amazes me that we get to be part of all of this. And the reason that we are is because somebody stepped into a royal mindset and became generous with their time, their talent, and their treasure. All of those things that we get to do as part of the kingdom of God is because someone has become royal in their thinking. And because of that generosity, these ministries and these outreaches and these campuses function. And I can tell you story after story of every one of those areas I mentioned Seeing people saved, healed, delivered, their family restored, life changed, addiction broken. Every one of them. There's no dead weight here. All of it producing fruit for the kingdom of God. All of it. Why? Because we're building God's house. This is, however, how integral generosity is to the temple. And it's building. It's not optional. It's essential. Pastor, it seems like some people give their time sacrificially at Provision 88. Yes, they do. Because there's no other way that ministry can work. Somebody has to give a lot of time or we couldn't do it. Generosity is necessary or it wouldn't function. The ministries that are functioning today of this church, in, today on a Sunday, all three campuses, the things that are happening, most of the things that are happening today are not by somebody getting a paycheck. It's being done by people who volunteered. Like they're making a sacrifice. They're making an investment. It's their generosity that makes us able to have a church where people feel loved and we can preach the gospel. And Generosity is building the temple. It builds God's house. The tabernacle didn't get built except in Exodus 25 
every, every Israelite who was prompted to give, gave. I don't know if you remember that. The temple wasn't built without the offerings of David and the people. The church wasn't established without the sacrifice of the apostles and the early believers who surrendered their lives, even their possessions, to have all things in common to provide for the needs of the people. Generosity is essential to the house of God. It's not, it's not just, well, you know, I don't know if I do very much around there. I don't know if it matters. If you've invested anything to refuge, God bless you. Because it was necessary. We couldn't do without it. Whatever that invest, you say, well, pastor, my income is not where I give a lot right now, but I sure do pray. Some people say that to me like it's second level investment. My first love language is prayer. I know the love languages and what they are. I get them. I know what the five are. But my first one is prayer, meaning if you pray for me, you shoot to the top. I think that's most important. If you walk up to me and you sincerely tell me you have prayed for me, you couldn't have told me anything better. A check for a million dollars would not have made me happier than that right there. And for all the ministries of this church, you say, well, I don't, my time right now, I'm working three jobs and I can't really come. How many people tell me, I wish I could be involved that? And then you name different things, but I'm working three jobs or I'm working a job and it's a lot of hours, or I'm raising three kids. Praise God, what are you investing? Because that's also important. Well, we're here when, when you know, when, when church happens, we're here and we pray for the church. We're tithing. Well, praise God. I know you'd like to be here at the certain time and do the other thing, but your investment of whatever it is is making the difference. Because royalty does this. This was David's mindset. Royalty transcends. You reach another level to where you realize that in the kingdom of God, I want to no longer just be one that receives from the kingdom. I also want to be one that invests in the kingdom. Now, we all going to be receiving from the kingdom always. Like, I come to church expecting, I need from God. Like, you don't reach a place where you say, well, I'm just a giver now. No. We're always going to need to receive. So there's no shame in that. But at some point, you reach that royalty thinking where you say, you know what? I've, just like Matthew 10, what Jesus told the disciples, freely you've received. So it's time to freely give. And a royalty mentality says, God has done so much for me, I want to make sure somebody else has these same opportunities. And then you make an investment of whatever God calls upon you to invest. True royalty understands that. You want to invest in kingdom work, not just receive from it. get one amen. That's amazing. <laughs> amen. Amen. This is what I'll leave you with. The most important part of this message is yet to come. It's in the next three minutes. Here it is. There are folks that say, Pastor, I already know that the Lord has been challenging me about my finances or about my giving. 
I'm being challenged this time of me to start tithing. Or maybe in a different vein, you say, Pastor, I know I need to step out and share my talent. I know there's things that God would have me to do, and I need to. Or maybe there's time I need to invest. And maybe you've thought about that today, but I'm guessing you've already been thinking about that. I don't think this message is the first time it's crossed your mind. But the question is, how do you get it done? How do you step from where you are into that royal mindset of, you know what? What I can invest is truly important, and I'm going to step forward and do it. No matter what area it is, time or talent or treasure, how do you get there? David gives an amazing key to this in verse 3. He says, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God. Because I've set my affection on the house of God, I've given to the house of God. It's like every area, every other area of obedience to the Lord and every other spiritual endeavor, it begins in the heart. I just need to overcome this thing and go and volunteer. I just need to do, I just need to, I just need to start tithing, I just need to bite the bullet, I just need to, whatever it is. Let me check you. Don't start with the action, start with the heart. David said, I gave because my affection was on the house of God. If you're feeling stirred, like the Lord would have you start investing in some way or, or increase in whatever he would have you to do, go to the heart. Don't first go to the checkbook or the schedule or the, go to the heart and say, Lord, give me a heart for what you're doing in your house. Give me such a heart for it because when you get a heart for what God is doing, it seems to be a very small sacrifice to be involved in the way he's calling you to be involved. It will help you when your heart burns for it. If you'll start praying for the people that could be affected by it, I feel like maybe I should start being used and serving over at the food ministry, but I've got some, you know, some reservations of that. Don't worry about that. Start praying about the people who attend the food ministry. Start praying about their lives. Start praying about their need for Jesus. Start praying about their need for love and care. You start praying about them long enough, there'll come a moment where you say, you know what, my inhibitions really don't matter. I haven't told Rhonda that I can sing yet. No one knows that I any number of things in the church. Because I'm not really sure I'm ready. Let me tell you how you get ready. You go home and start praying about the people that will get ministered to by that place. And there'll come a moment when you can't not do it anymore. Just ask the Lord to give you his affection. And if it's a financial matter, you say it's time for me to, to tithe. God's calling me to give to missions. God's calling me to tithe. He's whatever. Don't, don't, don't pray about that, that money. That go, up, go to the heart. Lord, I want a heart for the people we're ministering to. I want a heart for the people that, re that receive benefit from what the church does. And you start praying about them, and you start praying about the outcome of souls being saved and eternal destinations changing. There'll come a moment where the discomfort gets a lot less about writing that check or making that commitment. 
because the discomfort with that person not knowing the Lord is more. He said, I've set my affection on the house of God. Well, once you do that, then God will have all your things. If he has your heart, he'll have your things. And that's where we want to be today. We want to be royal. We want to be those who invest and not just receive in all the different areas. And so today, I wonder where is God calling you to invest? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you have invested into us that which you want to multiply through us. And I pray that in this room, we would begin to value the things you've given us, whether it be time or talent or treasure, abilities, gifts, whatever it may be, to the point that we would recognize that your your house needs it. You have need of it. A boy with a small lunch was needed. He gave it. And I'm pretty sure, Lord, that the Bible makes it clear that everyone ate, which means the little boy ate too. He didn't give away something he was never given back because you give seed to sowers. And those of us that even feel like, Father, there's things we need to invest our time and we're not sure if we have the time. If we'll sow where you call us to sow that time, you'll multiply our time. For those who are being called to tithe and they don't see how it works on paper, Lord, there's a way that if if we cooperate with you, you take care of us. But grab our hearts. Give us a heart that's like yours for your church, for the people it ministers to, for the world. And then, Lord, you'll have all of our things. In Jesus' name. This is the way we want to conclude. If you're surrendering not just your things, but your heart to the Lord, to let him have it so that he can dictate how you spend that time and that money and how you use your gifts you say Lord I'm giving you my heart and whatever needs to flow out of it I'm going to allow to flow if that's if that's in your that's in your heart would you stand with me I'm going to pray that would you pray something like that with me father we're just committing right now here's our hearts we love you We love your house and we love the people that receive ministry from your house. We love your kingdom and we want to see it expand. We want people to come into it. We want people to be changed by it. We want eternity to see souls added to it. And so, Lord, here's our hearts. Now just give us the direction of how to invest, and we will. And I thank you that it'll be more than enough to meet the eight needs of the ministries and the areas. We'll turn around and realize that we were part of something much bigger than ourselves. And the investments we've made were worth it in eternity. In Jesus' name.